Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 17th of January 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News, your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us Northern Exposure from north of the border and also our very own Katie Joe. Right. Uh, let's uh, get straight on then with uh, all children deserve protection from online sex sexual abuse. This is uh, the Internet Watch Foundation. Um, and they uh, have reported uh, that uh, there's been a threefold increase in abuse imagery of seven to 10 year olds. Uh, they're detecting more child sexual abuse material online than ever before. And of course, this is uh, timed very well for the upcoming online safety bill, which is uh, about to go into parliament. Uh, they're also saying that they're seeing a growing number of these images being self-generated, meaning that uh, you know the child, the individual who was uh, in the image uh, has posted that image themselves. But they're saying 252,000 URLs containing these images as opposed to 153,000 uh, in 2020. Um, and uh, so when we look at uh, other commentators on this, there's NSPCC, record high number of recorded grooming crimes lead to call for stronger online safety legislation. Um, and so uh, the NSPCC is saying that there were 5,441 5, sexual communications with a child offences recorded between April 2020 and March 2021. And that was an increase of around 70% from uh, the recorded crimes in 2017-18. Uh, and all of ha almost half of the offences, they say, uh, used Facebook-owned apps. So whether that be uh, Facebook itself or WhatsApp or uh, Instagram and so on. Um, and they're saying that in the last six months of 2020, Facebook removed fewer than half uh, of this child abuse content that had done previously, and they're calling for uh, for a major uh, rethink of the online safety legislation um, in order to make it uh, uh, a requirement for or to incentivize online uh, companies to take action against these crimes. Uh, David, I just want to get your thoughts on this because it seems to me that. Um, it's not the responsibility of uh, IT companies or technology companies um, to uh, take action against crimes. It's the responsibility of the police uh, and the prosecution, uh, you know, the, the, the legal uh, system. system, thank you, uh, to take this action. Um, and material obviously should be uh, hidden as quickly as possible, but it seems to me that this is an excuse that's being used. We've said this before. But the, the, the onus is on the police really to take the first steps and, and make sure that any criminal activity is prosecuted rather than relying on technology companies to try to take action against this. So the, the, the state as a whole is not covering itself in glory. We'll, we'll come to this probably next week, but we have a situation in Scotland where um, there are sexually explicit questions being asked of school children questions that the government ministers responsible will refuse to answer themselves because it would be a gross invasion of the privacy to do so. Um, we've got uh, a number of charities um, pushing to normalise paedophilia, pushing to um, uh, in, encourage or certainly normalise things like, like sexting where it, children are sending explicit images. Uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, moves afoot to make this situation a great deal worse. Um, whilst I would be keen that any uh, platform uh, acts very rap rapidly to remove such images um, from their 
uh, from their sites, uh, there's more to this uh, than simply um, than simply better regulation of um, internet companies. Yes, indeed. Well, uh, let's move on to to this then, and this is uh, Raconteur saying, "Will the online safety bill actually protect people from abuse?" So there is a lot of effort within the mainstream press, within various uh, uh, charities and other NGOs, to get the scope of the online online safety bill changed and the. Uh, the, the term abuse of people, whether it be of children or of adults, uh, is absolutely centered to that. Um, let's, uh, let's just have a look at this one then. Worrying online safety bills slammed for failure to ban junk food ads for children. And at first glance, I thought this was talking about UK uh, because one of the uh, areas where there's an attempt to, to sort of widen the scope of the online safety bill is with respect to advertising. But actually, this is Ireland. And so Ireland, just by coincidence, in parallel with the UK, is pushing for, through pretty much identical legislation. Uh, and it is just really to highlight once again uh, that, uh, that this is not just a UK thing. The UK is pushing this agenda uh, and is leading the, the, the charge. But certainly other countries, Ireland, Europe, uh, the United States, all pushing forward with their own legislation. So this is global policy that it, we're seeing. It is global it? policy, but it's being driven from, from the UK. So uh, Pretty Patel backs ads uh, accusing Facebook of blindfolding police and checks child sex abuse inquiries. One aspect of the uh, online safety bill that the government has been very much pushing forward with is this notion of end-to-end -end encryption. Uh, they're very concerned that really the majority of the public don't understand what end-to-end -end encryption is. Um, one of the targets for this type of uh, rhetoric from the government, although they're using child sexual abuse as the driver for it, once again, uh, has been uh, uh, Telegram. Uh, and we know why Telegram is being particularly targeted by the British government. Um, but I just wanted to highlight this. Um, this article, by the way, sorry, I'll just put it back on screen for a second from the Times, was from uh, September last year. So why are we mentioning it now? Well, because somebody very usefully put in a, uh, a freedom of information request because the key thing that Preet Patel and the Home Office are pushing forward through is, with is a new ad campaign uh, targeting end-to-end -end encryption and trying to make sure that people are worried about it, scared of it. Uh, it's really something to be scared of and this is, this is one of the directions they're going to be pushing on this. So this uh, FOI says, Dear Home Office, I would like to know the cost of the upcoming ad campaign directed at Facebook's end-to-end -end encryption proposal, uh, including the, co the total payment to Saatchi uh, and also the total payment to any other agencies uh, as part of this campaign. So that has now been answered. Um, and uh, this is what uh, the government has said or the Home Office said. Under current plans, around £534,000 is allocated for this campaign. Approximately £56,000 of that will be used to support campaign evaluation through an independent research agency. No other ad agencies are involved in the campaign. Um, so, Brian, um, we should be quite comfortable that that kind of money is more money being pushed into because it's going to be carefully selected uh, mainstream media that get the, uh, the, the results of this campaign, um, including uh, The Sun, I think, is one of the key uh, media outlets that's going to be getting a large chunk of this money in order to run these ads. Well, you reported a while ago, Mike, about a huge sum of money that the government said was going to make available for its manipulative media. 
I think 300 million or something in that. Uh, uh, yeah, yes, of, a, of an overall advertising campaign that was somewhere around 1.2, 1.3 billion pounds. Yeah, so the government, which has got no money for making things better in this country, has got plenty of money when it comes to the government literally taking over control of media. And of course, they'll use any any excuse to do this. And uh, child abuse is a key one for them because it's so so emotive. Yeah. So I think these are very very dangerous moves by the government. Um, okay, let's move on to the uh, police crime and courts bill. Uh, and here is uh, uh, an article uh, in Med Act: uh, the public health case against the policing bill. Uh, this briefing argues that the uh, bill's expansion of police power in prisons will in fact harm public health. That was, uh, again, from November last year. Uh, they have brought this up to date, as we'll see in a second, with an open letter. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, here's the Morning Star, because over the weekend, of course, uh, there were a number of uh, rallies and protests against the uh, police courts crime and sentencing bill. And what's interesting about this is that uh, there's very much a division uh, along uh, almost you know political spectrum lines between people that are campaigning against this particular legislation and people who might be campaigning against the online safety bill or campaigning against lockdown and other things. So this is very much a left-wing campaign to kill the bill. And I think that's quite unfortunate because this piece of legislation needs to be defeated. Uh, it is going through the House of Lords at the moment and the House of Lords begins its final day of detailed, de uh, de what are they calling it, a check on the police crime and uh, uh, courts bill today. Um, and uh, they're particularly looking at uh, the issues of increased penalties for obstructing a highway, uh, new stop and search powers of the police, the creation of serious disruption prevention orders, uh, and, uh, and so on. So uh, those three uh, areas are particularly related to physical campaigning and physical protest. The online safety bill, of course, is about online campaigning and the online protest in particular. Uh, and they're using, uh, well, in the case of the courts bill, they've used the activities of... Uh, the various environmental campaign groups to try to push through this narrative, whereas with the uh, online safety bill, it's child sexual abuse is very much the, the sort of justification for it. Um, so, but the Labour Party, the Lords and the Labour Party, uh, sorry, the Lords that belong to the Labour Party seem to be about to uh, vote against the scope of highways clause in particular. Um, and uh, they're not terribly happy about it. But if we come back to uh, the uh, open letter, the police bill and the mental health uh, issue. This is uh, Med Act once again. Uh, and what are they saying? Well, let's have a look. Uh, they're saying we're writing to you as mental health professionals to express our grave concern that police crime sentencing and courts bill will have a profound negative impact on young people's mental health with unforeseen consequences, including escalation in criminal behavior. We cannot think of better measures to disempower and socially isolate young people who are already suffering, suffering the devastating mental health consequences of disrupted education and prohibited social contact imposed uh, by the pandemic. Well, we could argue about that because it was imposed by the government. But anyway, uh, we can. they say engaging in nonviolent protest is a democratic right that is part of such involvement and restricting it uh, in the manner envisaged by this bill will further erode young people's trust in politicians and their belief that their voices are heard, respected and matter. And they're talking about mainly uh, campaigning against uh, environmental uh, impact of global climate change, alleged and so on. So let's see what the uh, Lord Chancellor had to say. Well, he's quite happy with, with where it is because 
Uh, David, I was quite interested in this, this term here. What I see from government is reference to proportionate use of power. Uh, and that word is vitally important here. Uh, proportionate use of power, is this a concept that you understand? Um, I, I, I thought that in the law, it was uh, what the reasonable person would judge to be um, appropriate in any given set of circumstances. Um, appropriate use of force. Power? Power means something else legally. That's a very confusing um, phrase. I'm not quite sure I do understand what he means there. No, indeed. Um, and then he went on to say, clearly the engagement of the rights of protesters with the rights of the rest of the public to go about their, sorry, to go about their lawful business is a delicate balance to be struck. And, and of course, this is, uh, uh, we can just whittle down the rights of anybody to, to get engaged in, in political discussion or political debate. Uh, but I thought this was a hugely interesting uh, article in Al Jazeera. Uh, to save democracy, the UK should kill its new police bill. Um, and this is, uh, this is from a gentleman called uh, Claudio Gallo, and he's a former La Stampo foreign desk uh, editor. So it is an opinion piece. Uh, and uh, let's see what he had to say. Uh, if this bill becomes legislation as expected later this month, British democracy will suffer a blow unprecedented in recent history. At the end of, the, of this road lurks a crime prevention philosophy that calls to mind Steven Spielberg's dystopian movie, Minority Report. He says, Patel managed to take this draconian bill to this stage by uh, taking advantage of the widespread backlash against disruptive protest actions by the environmental group Insulate Britain. Since the end of the 30-year period, he went on to say, of economic growth and democratic uh, gains experienced between 1945 and 1975 in the West, a period which French economist Jean uh, Farasti, uh, famously called the Glorious 30, democracy in the Western world has been in steep decline. During this time, Western governments started to swiftly move away from supporting active democracy and tacitly created conditions for citizens to only participate, participate in democracy passively. Eventually, a popular participation in governance uh, was reduced to the casting of a vote uh, for one of a few pre-selected candidates every four or five years. The message that was sent to the citizens was that after casting their vote, they should just stand aside and elect, let elected officials do their work. Uh, the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill is nothing but an extension of this sentiment. It clearly tells the British public after casting your vote, do not care to interfere, sorry, do not dare to interfere with the actions of those in power. Uh, but this is not democracy. The public should always maintain the right to correct the course of their governments uh, through protests in democratic countries. I thought that was uh, just brilliant, brilliant yeah. comment, Mike. Yes. Any other thoughts? Uh, well, I just find it interesting that we have to go to Al Jazeera to get this type of analysis, which is on the button and, and accurate. And if we're looking at the uh, wider press in UK, it seems that the journalists are too, I use the word naive, that's the politest word, they're too naive to actually put, uh, pick up what's happening to the country. Democracies long gone in UK. David. Yeah, well, sorry, it's David. I was just going to say to you uh, before you, this, this is an area where we've got to set aside our, where we sit on the political spectrum. This is, this is one of those bills where we've got to come together and actually campaign, uh, no matter what our particular per personal politics might be. In, indeed. And the whole direction of movement is away from liberty, away from any sort of personal responsibility personal voice, individual voice being heard, and into this, people have called it the blob, 
right? This this thing that that, that governs and rules and controls you, and over which you have no influence. You just ha- you just have to passively uh, receive what's what's being done. And on going back to the online harms bill, the Adam Smith Institute, a very conservative, cautious organisation. Um, uh, they said it fails to the changes to the bill fail to alleviate the gigantic threats posed by the draft online safety bill to freedom of speech, privacy, and innovation. It would still mean speech being less free online compared to offline, um, and that's uh, Matthew Lesh from uh, the Adam Smith Institute. So you you see here that the, the direction of movement is is all towards controlling, and when you see the interaction of the various organisations involved, it starts to look very sinister. We've seen and laughed at the idea of the Trusted News Initiative, the BBC's Trusted News Initiative. They've got something called Project Origin, um, a new coalition to detect, tag, and manipulated media. Uh, so this, so anything that doesn't fit the narrative anywhere in the world will be tagged, um, and, and all the various news organisations involved um, will, will attack it in the same way. Uh, it's uh, a project led by the BBC, uh, Canada, CBC, Radio Canada, Microsoft, and the New York Times. What a wonderful combination of organizations that is to control what you see in your media. Yeah, you can do better. A little bit of sarcasm there, I think. Well, uh, let's just bring this one in to uh, widen the debate a bit. This uh, was reported to us by a number of people. It's from the 14th of January uh, this year. Mail reporting retired BBC Panorama Director 76 found with 832 child abuse images, gasps in shock as he avoids jail after the judge said his poor health would make prison particularly challenging during the pandemic. Um, So the gentleman in question is 76 years old, so we could have a debate about uh, his age and his uh, physical health. But nevertheless, if we're looking at what the child abuse uh, issue is all about, of course, it gives immense power to the government and the so-called law enforcement agencies because if they know what's happening, they can uh, blackmail individuals involved. We should remember that BBC uh, film clip with Tim Fortescue, the whip, uh, in the Heath government who calmly said that they were effectively using blackmail if there had been matters Uh, concerning small boys within the Conservative Party. So we know what's happening in the background. But of course, our very own BBC, excuse me, has been hard at work grooming the children um, with explicit sex in the BBC's own education uh, world. And then, of course, we turn it round the other way and we need the, uh, the bill in order to crack down on what's happening. So I'll just throw that one in there. But let's have a look at uh, the subject of can we trust the government to investigate itself? Well, this little meme was circulating at the weekend, which I thought was very appropriate. It says, hi, I'm Sue Gray, and I'll be running a thorough investigation. And then we seem to have a bit of Boris Johnson uh, with uh, a female persona. Uh, But of course, let's put alongside it another female here, And we've got the Met Police uh, who have said that they won't be investigating at all uh, anything to do with the Downing Street lockdown parties until uh, the Grey inquiry concludes. So can we trust the police to do their job? I don't think we can. There seems to be a very cosy relationship with government, particularly through the common purpose members. 
Uh, this is what the Metropolitan Police had to say. It was tweeted out, so good formal statement. I'll just take one part of it. We're live ongoing public breaches of the restrictions were identified. Officers engaged with those present, explained the current restrictions, encouraged people to adhere to them, and only as a last resort moved to enforcement. So the police were using their policy with the public to explain why they weren't actually going to tackle any of the uh, government side. And yet the government, of course, have been the people enforcing the lockdown on the rest of us. Well, the whole thing was summed up, I thought, quite nicely in this tweet from Pundemonium. Uh, he said that Farrow and Ball are planning a new colour called Sue Gray, uh, but unsure whether it will be a total whitewash or just a covering over unsightly cracks and stains. No truth that it will require a brush with the law, but it will remain forever tacky. Yeah. So I think that person hit the whole thing on the um, on uh, hit the nail on the head. Uh, but let's have a look at this headline because um, it's very, very interesting. It's talking about levelling Britain with a blitz of new policies. And I've labelled that the real political plan for 2022. We've still got lockdown effectively. We've got a very um, confused public agenda. Nobody knows what's happening in politics. Uh, so this was the article from the Daily Mail. Uh, Prime Minister fight back plan to level up Britain. And at the top in the sub little headline there, it's talking about a blitz of new policies. So we haven't dealt with COVID. We haven't got the economy back working. We haven't got the whole of society working again. Now we're going to hit the public with a whole range of policies, and this is to further confuse them. So if we have a look at some of the inputs, we've got Partygate going on at the moment, where, of course, people know that they can't trust the Conservative Party. Uh, but we've also got headlines now uh, pointing out that Keir Starmer was also involved in drinks. So now the Labour Party is also being brought in, undermined and discredited. Uh, we've got the police standing idly by on the sidelines. So we know we can't trust the police. Uh, we've got the uh, uh, royalty now under massive attack with both the Andrew saga, but also what's uh, been happening with Harry over in the States. Uh, we've also got the total breakdown of the NHS and uh, we've got uh, basically um, more lockdown or lockdown still in place, the face mask still in place. So this is the Trojan horse of the dictatorship. And of course, the thing to remember is that the government increasingly linked into the global corporates. And this was a Financial Times article talking about uh, GSK, GlaxoSmithKline and Pfizer holding out for 60 billion consumer arm bid from Unilever. So this shows us the sheer scale of the uh, companies involved with this. And as this uh, uh, malicious political plan unfolds, let's remember that our own government have been using the applied political psychology in order to drive the agenda. So that makes a uh, a pretty dangerous mix of things that we all face at the moment. Yes. Okay, uh, David, let's uh, move on to COVID matters. And we're starting with a video clip here uh, with uh, Nova, Novak Djokovic. Just uh, give us an introduction to that. This is uh, the very excellent Pat Cash uh, asking the question that needs to be asked and getting some answers uh, regarding uh, the expulsion of Novak Djokovic. 
pretty simple question. Is Novak Djokovic or other unvaxxed people a danger to society and themselves? So bottom line is if you're fit and well, you cannot possibly represent a respiratory health, viral health threat to anybody else. So there's no reason medically to say that he is in any way representing a lack of safety to the continent of Australia. It's just, it's a ridiculous thought at this point in time. He's not a problem. If you are somebody in society and you took the vaccine, you should be concerned about yourself. Don't be concerned about Djokovic's uh, immune status. The vaccines have negative efficacy. That means you're more likely to get the disease if you're vaccinated in Omicron. Vaccination will never protect anyone against infection. And so this whole business that you are protected after vaccination has been fraudulent from the very beginning. So there you have it. You have uh, the whole Djokovic um, scenario which played out with its um, an inevitable outcome where the state gets its will and the individual is, is sent packing um, to, to another country, uh, is based on nothing reasonable, uh, nothing factual, nothing that can be justified scientifically uh, or rationally. There is no threat posed by this healthy, well-fit individual, just as there's no threat posed by any of the other people who are being told to consider themselves biohazards. Yes, indeed. Now, uh, you're going to introduce uh, the 100 days mission to us now, David. Now, I think we're going to cover this in a bit more detail on Wednesday. Is that the plan? Yeah, that's the plan. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, so just uh, introduce this. Yes, this is a, just a taster for, for Wednesday's more uh, in-depth in, in uh, look. So uh, here we have um, a, a document I came across courtesy of um, um, Bill Gates and his, and his discussion online with Devi Sridhar. They mentioned a 100 days mission and they, hope, they hoped it would work well. So I went looking and what I found was indeed a document presented uh, at the G7 conference in 2021 by the United Kingdom, 100 days mission to respond to future pandemic threats. And what is a 100 days mission? Well, it's, it's very positive. We know it's good because it's endorsed by none other than Sir Patrick Valance and Melinda Gates. And here we see they both signed the, the forward to the document. And it's about reducing the impact of future pandemics by making diagnostics, therapeutics and vaccines available within 100 days. So all that, uh, you know, long safety studies will have none of that. And what they want to do is they want to completely change the timeline. So they compare what happened under COVID, which everyone else seems to think was at breakneck speed and, and involved the cutting of huge numbers of corners off normal vaccine safety trials. More on how good those were even to start with from, from Katie Joe later in the programme. Um, but what they're saying is, well, that was nowhere near fast enough. So now the World Health Organization is going to declare uh, an emergency um, earlier. And uh, within 100 days, we're going to have diagnostic tests, therapeutics, and vaccines all ready for mass rollout. Sorry, so David, can, the, I, can I just interrupt a second? When you say that they're going to declare uh, pandemics earlier, does that mean before they happen? <laughs> well, earlier, they don't, they don't really specify. Um, 
They declared the last one when it didn't happen. If you look at the all-cause mortality figures, it didn't happen, but they still declared it. Um, but earlier than that. So before it happens, yes, but 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 even more before it happens. Okay. Well that's so uh, that's the hundred so that yeah. so that's the hundred days mission. And um that's that's um, going to be governing the next pandemic um scale that comes along. Yeah, okay. Well look, let's move on to the spectator uh, and uh, let's look at how uh, uh the government's scientific advisors did uh, with respect to uh, the COVID-19 pandemic in inverted commas. Yes, an excellent article in The Spectator here and, and not put behind, it's so good they didn't put it behind the paywall so everyone can see it. So this is, this is very good. Um, so this, this first graph here compares the, um, the predicted um, uh, number of cases um, depending on uh, well, whether they'd high vaccine escape or low escape, the two the two areas of uh, prediction from Sage compared against the red line, which is reality, and reality rather than one hundred twenty thousand, we're talking twenty thousand. So well out there um, from Sage. The next uh, the next graph here is the summer reopening. Remember all the all the concern about the summer reopening and how much damage it was going to do. Um, so COVID patients in hospital, uh, the grey lines are the uh, various scenarios run by the SAGE computing team uh, with their, their, their models and their predictions. And the red line right down at the bottom, that's what actually happened. So again, the scaremongering, the scaremongering from SAGE was seen to be entirely fictional. Um, and perhaps the most dramatic one here, um, COVID hospitalizations, likely scenario September 21. So here we see another huge prediction of the number of hospitalizations. So we're talking up to 7,000, rising from 1,000 to 7,000. And in fact, nothing really happened. It just, it just kind of meandered along more or less where it was. So again, we see the SAGE, the sage predictions are um, always false. They are always false. They're always hugely never in the same direction. So they're always throwing towards panic. They're always, they're always um, directing towards government action to reduce liberty, to close down the population. They're giving reasons um, for the government to act against their liberty, all of which are false, all of which are based on uh, erroneous computer models, and all of which have been shown by experience to be worthless in terms of actually predicting the future. Um, you would be better with a magic eight ball. You'd be better play, playing with a, you know, tossing a coin. Uh, but this is clearly um, a means of driving public policy and, and excusing public policy and giving reasons for public policy that, that is, is without any justification. It's without a shred of, um, of, of evidence or of, um, um, believability. This cannot stand. Uh, we cannot go through this again based on more um, erroneous, um, fanciful predictions. Uh, particularly if the pressure uh, is for things to happen much faster, the 100 days. Is the 100 days, do you think, uh, in order to make sure that the public really doesn't have time to think about what's going on? It just is such a uh, a massive explosion of of propaganda and uh, and fear mongering uh, that 
even worse than the last two years. The public just is so destabilized that everything flies through. Is that is that what you think? Well, well, I mean, in hundred days, I mean, there wasn't much safety testing with the vaccines we've got or the the, the so-called vaccines that we've got. What can you do in a hundred days? Um, the, there's no testing. There's no pause for thought. It's not just that the the the, the people will be carried away by the fear. The governments, the institutions, the National Health Service, the schools, the education um, services, um, everything will be immediately thrown into, into a state of turmoil um, with this 100-day clock uh, ticking from the earliest possible moment when the World Health Organization can declare an emergency. It seems, it seems um, a, a, a recipe for... Um, uh, for the psychological manipulation of the entire country. Yes, and of course, David, the obvious thing is that in a hundred days there can be no long-term testing of the safety of vaccines. So effects that might not appear for uh, six months or years, even these are presumably going to be ignored. Well, you, it, compared to how things used to be done only a year or two ago, you wouldn't even have time for short-term testing. Of vaccine safety, you yes. would you would barely have time for the the, pre, the first preliminary tests with a few dozen volunteers. Okay, well, look here, the animal tests that are meant to precede them. Uh, indeed. Okay, well, look here's the uh, here's the Guardian, and the headline is uh, COVID booster jabs in England to be thrown away as demand falls. Oh dear. How sad. Never mind. Yes, it's uh, it's a sad, sad story. This um, there is a booster jab. Um, demand uh, has uh, has fallen dramatically. There's a lack of demand and uh, hundreds of thousands of jabs of the of the booster jabs are going to have to be thrown away because they are going to exceed their use by date. Um, so that the the public is wakening up. They they were told to get their the their two jabs. Most of the public I'm not quite sure how much we trust some of some of the figures, but most of the public com complied. And then they were told, well, those two jabs aren't any good. The, the, the chief executive of Pfizer said, no, no, they, they, they do little or nothing. But the third one, the third one's wonderful. And you can see the people wising up and just ceasing to believe the lies. Um, but uh, don't worry, because, of course, although Boris Johnson has repeatedly said, no, 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 voluntary, not mandatory, uh, the mandatory COVID-19 uh, jab schemes seem to be getting closer to the British coast. They are. Now, this is, this is being discussed. It's not yet in, imposed in Ireland. This has been discussed in Ireland. Mandatory COVID-19 vaccination um, could be necessary for the overall good, says expert Karina uh, Butler in the Republic of Ireland. Um, the Irish Miller reporting here. We have some video of this. Yeah, we have a little bit of video, uh, Stephanie, if we could. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And the Irish Times this morning, the, the front page leads with this line that Neffet is considering mandatory um, vaccination. Do you see any reason for us to adopt that strategy in the future? I think this is something that really has to be thought about. There are pros and cons to mandatory vaccination. There are other situations 
where we want people to be fully vaccinated, for example, with hepatitis B, if they're a healthcare worker, and if they're doing procedures that might put either them or their patients at risk. But I know this has been looked at by uh, the department, and a paper has been done on that, and careful consideration will be given to it. It's always preferable if people can look at vaccinations, have the information and be able to make an informed decisions for themselves and get it. But there can be situations where making a vaccine a requirement is necessary for the overall good. But that's been looked at at the moment. Okay, well, the greater good. Yes. Well, she the will greater say... good will be that... Well, sorry. She also used the we word, we. Who is we? And that's the question I always want to ask. Who is we? Um, okay, well, look, uh, no, uh, no. sorry, David. Uh, what's going on in Canada then? Yes. So um, if, you, if you think that um, the uh, Irish state planning to compulsorily vaccinate all of, the, uh, all of the citizens isn't creepy enough, let's go to Canada and see what they did without telling anybody during the uh, COVID crisis. Health Agency of Canada confirmed media reports just before Christmas that it had secretly accessed location data for 33 million mobile devices to monitor the movement of Canadians during COVID-19. That number represents roughly 87% of the population who were spied on without any knowledge that the government was accessing their data. Public Health Agency of Canada officials were forced to admit this had occurred after a request for proposal was published with a call for interest in continuing a program of collecting data for up to five more years. So they were spying on 87% of the entire population by monitoring their movements via the mobile phone network. And they wanted to do it for another five years, but unfortunately they let the cat out of the bag and got caught. Okay, Mike, do you think it's possible that that's happened here or in other countries as well? Or is it just Canada? Oh, well, now, uh, if you remember, one of the four or five pieces of legislation which I feel are enabling acts to, to uh, create a dictatorship uh, is already an act of parliament passed last year, which gives agents of the state the ability to break the law uh, at, at a, on a whim. So uh, is, it, is it likely? I think it's highly likely. Well, this is the thing. Now, uh, on a more positive note, we have here a piece uh, from... Uh, the Steve Kirch um, blog, which is excellent and provides a lot of information on matters relating to COVID. Uh, this was also published on the Lou Rockwell site. Um, and it's on the subject of how I would handle the pandemic. And he's got an eight point guide. So, Boris, if you're out there right, and you're listening, which is unlikely, but still, this is how you should do it. One, end all mandates, lockdown, and stop all vaccines immediately. Two, end the liability protection for all vaccines now. Three, no one should ever be coerced into taking an injection or doing anything to the body in order to keep their job, avoid taxes, or walk into a business. Four, if you're worried about getting COVID, buy a respirator and have a nice day. Five, if you get COVID, verify with rapid antigen tests, then use proven early treatment protocol. Problem solved. Six, stop censoring doctors, period. Seven, 
call a halt to the emergency. There never was an emergency. Eight, get rid of the corruption of the, at the FDA, the CDC, the NIH, the MHRA, we would add. Uh, that would be a good start. Um, and the first name that comes up here is Tony Fauci. More on him in just a moment. What do you think of that list, gentlemen? That sounds uh, totally common sense to me, which makes it very dangerous to the government because, of course, if you apply uh, reasoning in a common sense way, the government is very frightened of you. But, yeah, I think we should try those and see if we get a better result than Boris's Johnson's, Boris Johnson's efforts over the last 18 months. Um, right. Uh, well, it is a Monday, David, so we've got to have a little tune. Now, we're just going to show an excerpt from this, uh, from this and we'll, we'll probably play the whole thing during extra. Uh, but uh, why don't you introduce this? Yeah, so we mentioned Tony Fauci, uh, and I, I want people to have a think about the nature of this, this little song that's coming up. Um, this shows how people are seeing him. This made uh, number 14 in the charts in, in November. So it got some serious um, traction. Uh, it's called Sad Little Man, and it describes quite accurately how he, he is operating and how people are responding to him. For him and the lie is for you Sad little man But he's treated like a god As the faithless prey to a fake And a fraud Worship the man Pledge to his word One shot, two shot Now you get a third Sad little man Sad little man You better run now While you know you can Sad little man Sad little man You don't fool me You sad little So um, I've seen that before. Maybe Katie Joe, who's who's um, in the wings, could actually comment. What did you think of that, Katie? I think that was wonderful. I loved that. That was absolutely brilliant. I've never seen it, so thank you for sharing me that with us today. I look forward to seeing the whole the whole the whole video. Um, more of that, please. Creative people out there, we need more because we're creative beings. So it's it's one of the best ways using music to get messages across. So yeah, um, fabulous. Loved it. That I, I've had a chance to look at it a few times. A couple of things struck me. One, they've got him wearing clown shoes. So he's, and when they, when they sketch on his face, it's partly like devil horns, but it's partly he's a clown. Um, and also, I thought the, the point about you better run now while you know you can. There is a realization that such has been the criminality, such has been the lie, such has been the harm that's caused that his position is exceptionally precarious now and the song speaks to that as well i thought it was very interesting yeah. and fun we could ask whether he's run to the same place that von tam has gone to but a detective work necessary there i think right look uh we are uh okay let's let's go on then uh lou rockwell here david uh COVID infections and deaths soar after the first vaccine dose Right, two, two quick uh, graphs here that show uh, information from Alberta, Ontario and Canada with a huge, I mean, a vast spike here in hospitalizations, 
right, immediately after the vaccine. You can see how much the, the hospitalization due, due to COVID is the reaction to the vaccine from that graph. And the same applies to deaths in the next slide, right? And the, 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 the document, the, the report on this commented, the figures fully support the national level data from Israel and Britain, and that's not been reported in the mainstream press, uh, which last year saw COVID deaths at all time highs just after they began mass vaccination program. Uh, a couple of other quick stats, because this is all about the statistics. Here we see um, Dr. Eli David, California imposed more mandates and restrictions than any other state in the US. As a result, it successfully flattened the curve, but along the wrong axis. <laughs> so there we go, so that, <laughs> flattening the curve. Um, We've got here um, uh, Stephen Kirch again talking about uh, myocarditis. Uh, they love to claim myocarditis was more prevalent before the vaccine rollout than after. So how do they explain this? And here you see the graph, myocarditis bumping along the bottom. The vaccination started and it spikes hugely. We know it's doing harm because we see it in the statistics. Final bit of stats for you today, Scottish Government COVID-19 statistics. Public Health Scotland Weekly Report 1201-22, right? It, they are telling us that 28% of Scots are unvaccinated and 72% are vaccinated. Um, but they're also saying that 85% of the cases, 78% of the hospitalizations, and, and nearly 80% of the deaths are in the vaccinated group. That graph alone says there is no justification for the vaccine program. Uh, indeed. Uh, but uh, just to end off this little segment then, uh, well, I mean, it is problematic if you want to be uh, a member of the Church of Satan or whatever, or, or get involved in Satanism, uh, that you've got to go through the same uh, procedure as everybody else. Well, I just thought it was interesting that the Church of Satan, um, with their, 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 their annual get-together, SatanCon 2022, are proudly advertising that uh, Vaccine cards and masks will be necessary in order for you to gain entry. So somebody at least supports the government policy. Uh, yes, indeed. Right. Let's just quickly move on. Uh, and just a, a quick, well, uh, to let everybody know that uh, Davos isn't happening this year because it's COVID and so on. So Davos is happening this summer. But in the meantime, they're holding uh, a virtual conference, the Davos Agenda, that started today. Uh, and it finishes on the 21st of January. Um, so that sort of make, makes up for the fact that the usual World Economic Forum Davos uh, 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 Symposium, or whatever you want to call it, isn't happening. What are they talking about at this? Well, they're going to be talking all about global risks. We mentioned that, that, that the World Economic Forum uh, released their global risks report last week. Um, and so they're going to be looking at climate action, failure, extreme weather, biodiversity loss, social cohesion, erosion, livelihood crisis, infectious diseases, human environmental damage, uh, natural resource crisis, debt crisis, and geoeconomic confrontation. There'll be all kinds of wonderful people there, including royalty and uh, all kinds of different people from uh, uh, Xi Jinping to uh, Modi. Uh, Antonio Guterres will be there. Ursula von der Leyen will be there, of course. Uh, Scott Morrison will be there. I hope he's got his visa sorted out. Uh, who else is there? Janet Yellen will be there. Uh, Olaf Scholz. Uh, and a whole bunch of others, uh, the great and the good, uh, John Kerry, Christine Lagarde. It, you couldn't do any better if you want to go to a, an event that has the best people on the planet, Brian. 
Yes, I don't that's think I can I, even comment on that. Like, it's so bad. Yes, okay. <laughs> and, uh, and so we move on then. And I just wanted to highlight this article in Wall Street on Parade. Uh, $2.7 billion in credit default swaps blew up one day before uh, the Fed launched its repo loan bailouts in 2019. Uh, and this is a fantastic article. Uh, David, I just very brief thoughts on it in a second. But uh, uh, so they're showing that the, the Federal Reserve bailed out the repo market in September 2019 and that that avoided uh, a, a repetition of the 2008 crisis, basically. Uh, so there was a default in credit derivatives contracts and that set off uh, the bankruptcy of Thomas Cook, if you remember, uh, and they filed for uh, bankruptcy in September. And then the repo market uh, froze and that forced the Federal Reserve to intervene the following day. Uh, and so it was uh, eventually became clear that uh, Thomas Cook was exposed to a single $2.7 billion credit derivatives contract. Uh, and uh, and so the quote here from the, the article is, while Thomas uh, Cook may have been the spark that ignited the inferno in the repo market, uh, there were plenty of other problems contributing to the general distrust uh, of each other during, uh, sorry, among global trading houses. Um, and of course, the problem here, David, is that... Uh, Okay, the Fed has stepped in very quickly here and used their funny money to to bail the thing out, but uh, everybody that's in the uh, the trading on the trading floors around the world, well, they probably experienced what happened in two thousand and seven and two thousand and eight. Uh, so, you know, there hasn't been long enough between that crisis and what happened in twenty nineteen. Uh, so they recognised the signs. I'm quite sure. Yes, and it, again, it's a, it's a Greenspan put. You know, the, the assumption will be that the central banks will will bail the the losers out at any given moment, um, and the repo market's not that healthy even now. Uh, it's showing um, definite signs of cycliness. So this could happen again any day. Any day, indeed. Okay, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org/community, and there are options to help us out there and if you're watching us for free we do need your financial support so that would be very much appreciated also uh, do share any of our material you find on the various platforms um, and while i'm here i'll just say apologies uh, that uh, we had the technical problem on friday which meant that it didn't go out on facebook but uh, that was uh, beyond our control i'm afraid uh, and uh, a reminder that uh, hoodies are available on the uk column website along with t-shirts and other things if you'd like to uh, support us that way as well Excellent. Well, just bring this uh, email up on the screen. I know it's very small. We should have uh, expanded that a bit for you today. But uh, just to summarise, really, somebody contacted us to say that um, in Cornwall, uh, it's apparent that uh, doctors are unwell. Surgeries are not operating because their doctors are not there. They're off sick. Uh, but also people are picking up on the fact that uh, surgeries are saying they don't have the manpower to deal with people who feel they need to see their doctor. Uh, but then it's discovered that the doctors are actually working in another location at vaccine clinics. So people being denied access to their GP or the GPs, but they're then discovering the GPs are not in the surgery as normal. They've been pulled off to some sort of vaccination clinic. And uh, the comment is that this is, is pretty bad, but nobody's reporting on it. Uh, in any detail. Now, we have had a number of reports about this, so we'll say if there are other people across the country who've got something to say about this, we'd be interested to know. Now, maybe this brings us back onto the subject of 
us and how healthy we are and what we do to stay healthy. And of course, there are many people who have written a great deal of material about the, uh, about the need to look after our natural immunity compared with taking pharmaceutical drugs or even vaccinations to stay healthy. So perhaps we can bring in Katie Joe and tell us what you've uh, been seeing here. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me on again. Yeah, so um, I wanted to come on today to talk about um, what I would say is the biggest crime against humanity, actually, and the biggest fraud in the history of mankind, and that is vaccination. And I am proud to say that I am actually an anti-vaxxer. Um, I've been told not to be so honest, in my opinion, but that is exactly what we're fighting for, isn't it? Freedom of opinion and whether people like that or not, to have that freedom uh, to voice that opinion. Um, obviously, I'm pro-choice, I'm pro-informed choice, um, but the truth about vaccines, um, which actually is the title of an amazing documentary by uh, Ty Bollinger, I believe you can still find that on YouTube. Um, it's something I've been researching for over 19 years now. Um, that's not to say I'm a medical expert, uh, but this stigma that's attached um, to people that are now questioning uh, vaccines um, and this sudden awakening to the myth that they are safe <laughs> and effective um, is something that I've been subject to and aware of for, yeah, as I said, nearly 20 years. Um, so, I, yeah, I took full responsibility of my children's health um, and never surrendered it to anybody just because they had the title of doctor in front of their name. Um, and we have a history of questioning vaccines in my family um, because we unfortunately had a, a tragic death. Um, my uncle over 50 years ago when he was three died of leukemia um, that was caused by the measles vaccine. Um, and it was a homeopath as well that said to me that her mum um, who was also a homeopath, predicted that in 60 years' time there would be a cancer pandemic. Um, so, yeah, once you start researching um, and you take on the responsibility of that decision yourself, um, you, you wake up to this um, fraud that has been spread across the globe. Um, and uh, that's, that slide you've got on the screen there is um, one of the books that I read front to back um, when I was doing my research. Um, I think I've given you four slides there of, of, of fantastic books that um, are well, easily to get online. Um, and there's a fantastic organisation uh, that's non-for-profit called The Informed Parent, um, who, who give talks and have a fantastic website. They've been going 30 years now. Um, and luckily in this country, when I had my children, I was, I was able to refuse the vaccine schedule um, because it's not mandatory. But I would watch in horror as they would become mandatory in other countries and how doctors like the incredibly courageous Dr. Andrew Wakefield were vilified for doing their jobs as doctors to protect children and cause no harm. And I learnt more evil behind the agenda um, that we are all aware of now. Um, I knew that the goal was for mandatory vaccination for every single human being on the planet. Um, it's big business. Um, you've just got to follow the money um, and you'll find Bill Gates. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't want to make this all about him, but obviously um, we do need to look at him and the Gates Foundation. 
And it was only in 2015 he was talking about reducing the world's population because of global warming um, by 15% using vaccinations and healthcare and reproductive health services. Um, and then five, year, five years later, here he is convincing the world that everybody must be jabbed. Um, so this man is not a doctor, he's not an epidemiologist, he's not a virologist, he owns virus patents and vaccine companies and he visited Epstein's Island multiple times. I mean, who in, the, who in their right mind would trust this man? Um, but the slide you've got there on the screen um, shows in the last decade where he's donated huge amounts of money. Um, Gavi, obviously, the Global Vaccine Alliance, um, the Gates Foundation is the second largest donor to the WHO after the US. And the Gates Foundation funded the work of two research groups the Imperial College research team and the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, both of which played a key part in convincing governments into um, going into lockdown globally. Um, and I must add here as well that his father worked um, on the board of Planned Parenthood, um, an organisation in America, which apparently exists to empower women. Um, but I'd urge people to do their own research on that as well. The founder, Margaret Sanger, one of her many quotes that actually would make your blood run cold. Um, we don't want the word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population. Um, she was also, not so surprisingly, a member of the American Eugenics Society. Um, and the last slide I have here shows us how the vaccination program the Gates Foundation has taken to countries um, such as America, third world countries, um, has left them now actually with the um, only strain of polio is a vaccine um, derived strain. So surely these countries would have been best, you know, helped by improving sanitization, living conditions, clean water, food supplies, secure food supplies, but there's no money in that, is there? Um, and I'd love to get across to the guests um, that are watching today um, that this is a huge subject, obviously, and it's a huge rabbit hole. Um, and it's not just about the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, and I'm urging everyone, especially doctors and nurses, to do their due diligence and not just to have blind faith in medical experts. Um, they lied about thalidomide, they lied about fluoride, they lied about pesticides. Um, they've continually experimented on us to this day and they will until we actually relinquish that and take back that responsibility for us, for our own health. Uh, Katie Joe, thank you very much for that. You've raised uh, a number of very interesting points and let's remind ourselves that, of course, Mr. Gates was uh, having private talks with Boris Johnson very early on into the whole COVID uh, so-called pandemic. Never any minutes of those meetings. What was discussed? Was it about politics or was it about health or was it about creating more profits? And isn't it, isn't it interesting that both those people have parents who are into population control and management? So just a coincidence. Just a coincidence. Just yes. a coincidence. Um, right, look, uh, let's let's move on to this. Uh, this is just a very brief reminder of what we covered on Friday uh, because there was a Freedom of Information uh, 
question went into the MHRA from Tom. And uh, thank you to everybody else because I've had so many emails about this with, with people that have put in similar FOIs to the MHRA. Uh, and the question was, if you remember, could you please answer a question for me? Where's the quantitative risk assessment data and report which demonstrates that the MHRA yellow card vaccine adverse reports are not as a result of vaccine adverse effects? And the MHRA wrote back and said, thank you. Uh, they said that there is a, a general duty on public authorities to provide access to official information, uh, but there's an exemption. So it's okay. We don't have to answer your question. And the reason that we're not answering your question this time is that uh, we believe your request is part of a campaign given the volume of requests that we received that are worded in the same way as your request. Uh, and uh, But don't, you know, you can ask for an internal review. And we said on Friday, everybody should be asking for an internal review on this because that's not justification for not answering the question or that. So uh, that that's what the MHRA's position was, Brian. Yeah, well, we're just going to follow on. We're going to drill down into what the MHRA is doing. And um, how, thank you for that little recap. If we look at uh, uh, the government website, it's got this uh, freedom of information request on the deaths following the COVID-19 vaccination. Uh, so this is a statement about how the MHRA is dealing with freedom of information requests. And they've got some published, but it, now we know that it's only the politically acceptable FOIs that they're going to deal with. If they disagree with what you're asking, if you start asking about safety, they're not going to publish anything and they're going to call you vexatious. But it's even worse than that because somebody kindly sent us this envelope. They had written to June Rain at the MHRA, Buckingham Palace Road, London, and it was returned by Royal Mail saying that um, either the address he had gone away or the address was incomplete, which it wasn't, or the address was inaccessible, which it can't be. Um, so it was refused or not called for, or no such address. They simply get their envelope returned. So if you dare to ask the MHRA the right questions, they're running very quickly. And if we have a look at what comes up on the government screen, everything is pointed through uh, to the yellow card scheme as if this was the safety valve on what's happening with the vaccines. Render a yellow card because this will make the vaccine safe. When in fact, all you're doing is putting data into the MHRA, which the MHRA never analyzes. And their latest tactic is, is uh, an immense word soup. This should be a little video clip if I've got the right one, uh, where you will see sentence after sentence, paragraph after paragraph, saying that they're looking after people's uh, health and safety. But what they never actually do is give the detailed statistics, the risk analysis that they have conducted on the yellow card data itself. So this goes on and on. We'll step out of this pretty quickly. Um, but what they do now is concentrate on how many vaccines have been given. That's the carrot. But they never get near the stick of how much damage has actually occurred to people as a result of the vaccines. And the one thing that they certainly haven't done is analyse the data. So they can't publish what they don't know? No. So what you do is you do this. You produce this mass of text, which if you drill down into, you read it, you find, well, you can't find what you're looking for because it doesn't exist. So let's take a little bit of that and uh, see what they're up to. Well, they're running a scam. And if we take some of the statements out of that, text. Now, I'm attributing it to June Rain. She's got the 
position of chief executive, so she holds the uh, can, as it were. Uh, she said at the time in this report, which was the 15th of December 2021, over 146,936 people across the UK have died within 28 days of a positive test for coronavirus. Vaccination is the single most effective way to reduce deaths. So there's no proof of that claim whatsoever. Sorry. This is uh, another statement. Part of our monitoring role includes reviewing reports of suspected side effects. Any member of the public or health professional can submit sus suspected side effects through the yellow card scheme. The nature of yellow card reporting means the reported events are not always proven side effects some events may have happened anyway, regardless of vaccination. Now, what's going on here is diversionary spin away from the fact that the MHRA has not released any quantitative risk assessment into those vaccine adverse effects. So what does she do? She comes back on the fact that, well, some of it may have happened anyway, regardless of the vaccination, but there's no baseline investigation. She goes on, all vaccines and medicines have some side effects. These side effects need to be continuously balanced against the expected benefits in preventing illness. Um, but there are no side effects that have been analysed by the MHRA. So she can't make this balanced equation that she's referring to. Uh, she promotes the vaccines. The COVID-19 Pfizer vaccine was evaluated in clinical trials involving more than 44,000. The COVID-19 vaccine AstraZeneca was evaluated in clinical trials. The COVID-19 vaccine Moderna was evaluated in clinical trials. So now she's taking your eye off the ball that the MHRA has done nothing, it would appear, and she's trying to get you to go back to the work that the pharmaceutical companies did to make up this huge hole in the safety role of the MHRA. And if we take this one here, the MHRA continually monitors safety during widespread use of a vaccine. We have in place a, quote, proactive strategy to do this. Um, so if we click on that link in the text, where does that take us? Well, it takes us through to this report of the Commission on Human Medicine's Ex Expert Working Group. Now, note you're going back on to the 5th of February 2021. Uh, details here of four uh, working group meetings. So this is all out of date material. That Hold on a second. Four meetings from May to October, but that's before the vaccine rollout. Uh, indeed, but this is being this is addressed in the up to date material from MHRA as to what they were doing. I've just you know followed the link through, and if you go into this uh, particular article, you come up with this. Uh, which is the report itself. And if we have a look at this report, we can go through each and every level of it and we will not find any vaccine adverse reaction safety evidence. So no risk assessment, assessment mentioned in the summary, nothing mentioned in the background, uh, the need for post-authorization post vigilance. So that's the vaccines are already running. There is no vaccine adverse reaction safety evidence in this text. It's not in the independent oversight of their activities. And then when we get to the proactive vigilance for vaccines, where they're telling us what they're doing, we can see that they're doing nothing but headlines. So let's follow it through. Identifying side effects and distinguishing these 
from coincidental medical events. That's what they say they're doing, but there's no evidence that they're putting out to show that. They say there's four main strands of their proactive vigilance. There's enhanced passive surveillance, observed versus expected analysis, rapid cycle analysis and ecological analysis, targeted active monitoring, the yellow card monitor, and formal epidemiological studies. And then they're engaging, they say, with academia and other experts. Uh, what, what the MHRA does with the data we generate, well, this is a false question because, uh, or statement, because they don't generate anything to comment on. And it says what information the MHRA will provide to the public on vaccine safety. And that takes you back into the yellow card system, which doesn't produce any evidence in the first place. So the overall result here is absolutely no published quantitative risk assessment. And that is because the MHRA either has the data and is not releasing it to the public, or it is simply lying and it is not monitoring the safety of these vaccines. Uh, David, a very quick overview there, but I encourage people to read the material themselves. The MHRA, in my personal opinion, is absolutely lying to the public because it has not carried out this risk assessment. Uh, if it had, uh, the evidence would shortly say that these vaccines are not safe. Yes, and, and we wrote to them back in June of last year asking them for another risk assessment when um, AstraZeneca uh, were admitting for the first time that yes, the, the, uh, the vaccines are having adverse effects, some of which have a fatal outcome. So they were admitting they were killing some people, um, but they were pointing to the benefits outweigh the risks. So I wrote to everybody, including, because they all pointed at the MHRA, so eventually to them, to say, okay, where's the quantitative risk assessment? Uh, because you're, you're, you know you're going to be killing some human beings here. There must be something very sound backing that decision that you're saying, well, we're going to save more lives than we'll lose. And uh, since June last year, I'm still waiting on an answer. Um, and it's interesting you mentioned June last year. I mean, we'll, we'll bring the, uh, the latest uh, ONS all-cause mortality statistics back on screen, the graph back on screen on Wednesday. But, you know, since June last year, David, there has been significant excess mortality compared to the five-year average um, and uh, nobody's commenting on it it's as if it doesn't matter it doesn't it's it just doesn't count yeah and, and as you delve into those figures and you start to look at things like the mortality in um you know 15 to 20 year old uh, young men um the there's a there's a a, a dramatic increase in the uh, in the rate of fatality and that happened immediately after the vaccine was rolled out to that age cohort. The, the signals are very clear. No one, no one can claim they don't know. The, the people in the MHRA cannot claim they don't know. Oh, that's yeah, true. Absolutely. Okay, well, look, uh, let's move on then, David, uh, to NATO. And we're going to start off here with the Washington Post. And Russia is pushing Finland and Sweden towards NATO. I thought it was Ukraine. Well, yes, everyone thought everyone's been watching Ukraine, but there's another there's another play happening here. Uh, so this is uh, James um, uh, Stavridis, right? Now he's a former uh, Allied Supreme Commander. He's a former uh, Admiral in the United States Navy, former Allied Supreme Commander of NATO, 
uh, and uh, he's writing in Bloomberg, picked up by the Washington Post without a paywall. They want people to read this. All eyes on Russian President Putin and his demands about Ukraine, backed by 100,000 troops and a build-up of military capability on the Russia-Ukraine border. Putin wants guarantees from the North Atlantic Treaty Organization that Ukraine will never be allowed to join the alliance, effectively giving him veto power over membership, which today stands at 30 nations. But less notice are two countries in the North which are strong and independent democracies and have long ties to NATO, although neither is a member, Sweden and Finland. Late last month, the Russian foreign minister made comments about both indicating displeasure with the idea of either joining the alliance. Now, what's happening in American press is a strange drumbeat. We have an example here, an opinion piece by Trudy Rubin. Uh, Putin seeks an empire. Can NATO stop him short of war? Um, so the, the drumbeat is very aggressive, and it's, and it's pointing at this Putin seeks an empire um, line. CNN, a comment here in another opinion piece by Frida uh, Gittis, uh, Putin's big miscalculation is Russia's Vladimir Putin plan to invade Ukraine, uh, launching a new war in Europe. The answer remains elusive, but perhaps it will come as no surprise to Putin, but he may have been taken aback. Uh, sorry, the, the, the response to um, Ukraine will come as no surprise to Putin, but he may have been taken aback when the countries that don't belong to NATO, namely Sweden and Finland, started, Finland started talking about joining directly as a result of his military threat to the Ukraine. Well, whether it's his or not, we can talk about Finnish President uh, Soli uh, Ninisto, in his New Year's speech to the nation, spoke of the possibility of military alignment and of applying for NATO membership. Um, and the Philadelphia Inquirer, again, Trudy Rubin, who's been busy this week, uh, Putin wants to rebuild the Russian Empire as his legacy. Um, and again, she's talking about um, Ukraine, but also uh, it goes on to discuss uh, the possibility of, uh, of entry by Finland. Uh, and uh, the next slide is uh, the, the original uh, Bloomberg opinion piece by James um, Savridis um, that uh, the Washington Post picked up on. Now, in this, he says um, that he, he, he'd worked a lot with the Finns and the Swedes. And he said, I would often say, if you ever want to join NATO, let us know on a Wednesday and we'll have you in by Friday. So uh, he, he rates the, the capability of the Finns and the Swedes very highly and um, would want to uh, have them a member of NATO if he could. And it continues, for now, NATO should quietly assure both Finland and Sweden that the door to membership is open, continue to hold significant military-to-military -military exercises, and welcome the deployment of Finns and Swedes on NATO military operations. So they're kind of semi-in, it would seem. Um, Finland, um, however, um, their foreign minister came out and he said that fin Finland has no plans at present to join NATO. Um, and uh, he said it does not, there's no discussions uh, with NATO regarding joining it, um, nor does Finland have such a project upcoming. Um, TASS, the Russian news agency, um, confirmed that uh, Russia is well aware of this and is concerned. NATO is not an instrument of development, it's an instrument of confrontation. Uh, Dmitry Peskov uh, underscored, a Russian spokesman. Um, TASS uh, also gone, of course, Russia is concerned over any NATO expansion 
uh, according to Peskov, the alliance was conceived in this way, an instrument of confrontation, and it was designed this way, and it was implemented this way, and it exists this way. It is totally, it's a totally obvious fact. So an expansion of this mechanism is a threat for us. And another Russian news out, outlet is saying that Stoltenberg appreciated the possibility of a quick entry of Finland and Sweden into NATO. Uh, quoting uh, Stoltenberg, uh, they, they have the following um, um, comment, quote, they meet NATO standards in most areas. They have a well-organized, well-managed security and defense institutions. Um, uh, they, they can, the, the entry can happen quickly if they make such a request. Um, but in the end, this requires a political decision by Sweden and Finland, as well as the 30 NATO allies. So um, Stoltenberg is also pushing quite hard that this is a possibility, and he's trying to encourage it. And there seems to be a, a, a use of the standoff in the Ukraine and the tension that's being constantly uh, increased over the Ukraine um, to uh, justify or encourage and the uh, entry of uh, Sweden and potentially Finland as well into NATO with huge strategic consequences and advantages for anybody planning military action against Russia. Um, so it's therefore just a coincidence, uh, David, just a sheer coincidence that just a few days ago, uh, our favourite Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, uh, was indeed in those exact countries. Um, so here he is tweeting, uh, this is the Ministry of Defence, tweeting this out uh, this week, being last week, the Defence Secretary Ben Wallace has been meeting with his counterparts in Scandinavia amid current tensions in Eastern Europe. So it's all being driven by Ukraine uh, or the Ukrainian situation. Uh, and so who did he meet? Uh, well, he, uh, he met, first of all, uh, the Defence uh, Minister of Sweden, uh, Peter uh, Hultqvist. Uh, then he went to meet the... Uh, uh, president uh, of uh, Finland, Ninisto, and then he went to meet the uh, Defence Secretary in Norway, uh, Odd Roger. I don't know why he chose the name Odd Roger, but that uh, seems to be his name, Odd Roger Enixon. Um, and uh, and so they they finished their little press release about this uh, by making the point that uh, Sweden, Finland, and Norway are already members of the UK-led Joint Expeditionary Force, so they're already used to to collaborating and integrating with. Uh, with other, uh, the, you know, there's 10 countries in total in the Joint Expeditionary Force. It really wouldn't be a major problem for them to join uh, NATO, um, which then brings us then to uh, GMA News Online and uh, Sweden boost patrols on Gotland uh, amid NATO-Russia tensions. So where is this going? Well, this is the question. So uh, the Gotland's a strategic island in the Baltic. And uh, yeah, the, the, this report, Sweden's military said on Thursday it was ramping up visible activities in the Baltic island of Gotland, God's land is uh, what that means, uh, due to increased tension between NATO and Russia over the Ukraine. So this strategy, if uh, strategy it is, seems to be working. Um, the GMA News Online continues, Gotland's uh, Sweden's biggest island is strategically important. It lies 330 kilometers, 200 miles from Kaliningrad, the headquarters of Russia's Baltic fleet. In 2019, uh, Sweden deployed an updated air to, uh, sorry, ground-to-air missile defence system on the island. Um, and it's not just uh, missiles and ships, uh, because we have a, a report here, Sweden deploys hundreds of armed troops in the island of Gotland in response to increased Russian belligerence in the Baltic re uh, region. 
Um, they, they have deployed armed combat vehicles and hundreds of troops to patrol streets on the island of Gotland. So it's very obvious and very, um, very visible. Um, Sweden and Finland found themselves dragged into Russia's ongoing standoff with NATO after Moscow threatened retaliation if the two Nordic nations became full members of the alliance. And what prompted that um, was a comment from the, Swin uh, the Finnish um, president, Soli Ninisto, um, who said, um, let it be stated once again, Finland's room to manoeuvre and freedom of choice uh, also include the possibility of military alignment and of applying for NATO membership, should we ourselves so decide. He said that uh, around about uh, New Year's Day this year. Okay, well, I'm just going to very quickly uh, move on to uh, to Ukraine itself. And uh, this was released by the Security Service of Ukraine a few days ago, uh, that the Security Service of Ukraine investigates Russian involvement in cyber attacks uh, on Ukrainian government websites. Uh, they're talking about uh, the attack, which uh, Ukrainian officials called massive, uh, took down several websites in Ukraine, including those of the Foreign Ministry, the Ministry of Education and Science, uh, the Security Service of Ukraine, uh, the State Special Service and Cyber Police said that uh, 10 of the government websites were subject to unauthorized information. And of course, it was the Russians that did it. I mean, who else, who else could it have been? Uh, so let's look and see what the Russian uh, response to that was. We're nearly accustomed to the fact that Ukrainians are blaming everything on Russia, even their bad weather. Uh, but don't worry, because uh, Jens Stoltenberg wrote to the rescue and uh, issued a statement. Uh, and uh, he said... Uh, NATO has worked closely with Ukraine for years to help boost its cyber defenses. NATO cyber experts in Brussels have been exchanging information with the Ukrainian counterparts on the current malicious cyber activities. Allied experts in country uh, are also supporting the Ukrainian authorities on the ground. In the coming days, NATO and Ukraine will sign an agreement on enhanced cyber cooperation, including Ukrainian access to NATO's malware information sharing system, NATO's strong political and uh, practical support for Ukraine. Will continue so maybe they're going to get ukraine divot in uh, bit by bit so they'll start off with the cyber uh, and then they'll move on from there at this stage they're very interested in ukraine and of course in 2017 theresa may said that uh, we were unconditionally committed to the collective security of uh all of europe including the ukraine um, and she did this without obviously informing the British people or Parliament. Yeah, um, right. Sorry, we're just having a quick editorial discussion. I mean, uh, we, it's we such a good picture, Mike. You just well, okay. Flash I'll, it I'll, on the I'll put now. I'll put the picture up then because uh, because here we have them both. Here here we have them both. Uh, Iraq war secret memo reveals Bush Blair plans to topple Saddam Hussein, and basically this Middle East eye uh, saying that uh, that this memo came out well before. Uh, any claims of weapons of mass destruction and so on. Uh, we'll go into more detail on that on Wednesday because we don't have time right now. Uh, but uh, everybody will be very glad to know that uh, Tony Blair is very happy uh, with Tony. He just wants to be called Tony. He doesn't want to be called Sir Tony uh, because he was not surprised, he says, by the backlash over the honour uh, because some people, says the Mail headline, detest him. Well, clearly uh, well over a million people that signed the... Uh, the petition uh, to test him. Uh, I think if that's representative of, of the UK, which I think it is, I think it's more than some people to test yeah, because them. a lot of people will not wish to put their name on a 
petition like that. So let's have a guess, yes. five million? Oh, I would say many more than that. But anyway, uh, he said he's perfectly happy with Tony, so he doesn't want to be called Tony. And strangely enough, the mail didn't, uh, uh, it, for, in all instances, call him Sir Tony. So that's very nice. Uh, but uh, David, let's just quickly end with a couple of, uh, of memes. Yes, yeah, so we've got someone here who's put a sign at the front of their bookstore. It says, please note, we've moved a few books around. Travel is now in the fantasy section. Sci-fi is in current affairs, and epidemiology is in self-help. Yes, good. I like uh, that one. Yes, next. Now, the, the, the next one is the gradual airbrushing of the government's COVID narrative. I love this, right? So at the start, we have, it makes you immune. The government says so. It's safe. And uh, it, it keeps you out of hospital. And then it makes you immune, gets airbrushed out. So government says so. It's safe, keeps you out of hospital. And then keeps you out of hospital. Gets, gets airbrushed out, so the government says so and it's safe. And finally, you're left with Stalin himself only in the picture. And it's just, well, the government says so. Yeah. And finally. And, and the final, finally, we have um, two people standing at the grave of the Centers for Disease Control, CDC's credibility. And uh, one asked the other one, do you think it died with COVID or because of COVID? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Very good. All right. Excellent. Well, we're completely out of time. So, David and Kelly Joe, thank you very much for joining us. A very big thank you to all our viewers and subscribers. And uh, we'd like to say once again, thank you to people who have made donations to the column. Those, of, those come in on a regular basis, and we're very grateful for that. But if you're not already a subscriber, please consider taking out a subscription because many people and uh, relatively modest subscription can make a huge difference. So join us if you're not already part of the team. And uh, that leads us in nicely to the fact we'll be back in a few minutes. For extra. For extra time. So thank you for joining us. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.